Uh, I want to save some time, save some time here to talk about the Mets, who lost again yesterday. Um, they went through a great stretch in the earlier part of August, but they've now been swept in back-to-back series, first by the Braves, then by the Cubs. According to Fangraphs, their playoff chances are down to about 13%. And look, uh, on the days leading up to the trade deadline, uh, Carl, watching the Mets was like having those moments that all parents can relate to, where you're watching your son or your daughter doing something, you're like, don't do it. Don't think about it. You better not do it. That's a bad decision. Uh, and that's what I remember thinking when I was hearing that, yeah, the Mets are not going to sell. They're going to actually try to buy. And they did it. Okay. And now it's apparent that the big Hail Mary play is probably not going to pan out for them. And to review where they were on, on uh, July 27th, which is the day they made the Stroman deal, their chances for a wild card spot that day, Carl, 7.2%. The chances for a division title, 0.6%. And there is enormous cost in doing this because now, because the value they didn't get for guys like Zach Wheeler, uh, you know, the potential value in a Noah Syndergaard, the value in Edwin Diaz, and he had some trade value before the deadline, that's gone because he's going to make over $7 million next year and it doesn't look like he probably is going to have time to recover. And on top of that, my God, the, the amount of salary they now are looking at for the rotation. Jacob DeGrom will make $25 million next year. A big jump for him, almost threefold. If they want to keep Zach Wheeler now, they'd have to give him $18 million in a qualifying offer. Syndergaard's going to jump to $12 million. Steven Matz is going to jump to about $6 million. Stroman's going to be twelve million to $13 million in that range. They already have the fourth highest number of dollars in payroll commitments for next year. And you know how the Mets do business. They don't necessarily wind up having one of the biggest payrolls. The future cost, the credit card mentality, this will devastate this team moving forward. It was a mistake at the time they did it. I know they went through a run. I know they had some fun days. Uh, and maybe they can reprise that to some degree. But man, this was a bad bet. You know, the comparison I made here on the podcast was someone with a pair of twos going all in with their stack of chips. It made no sense. And now the cost is right in front of them. What do you think? It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday, Labor Day, September the 2nd, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, it'd be greatly appreciated. It helps the show get more publicity and get out there to other Mets fans like yourself. Hope everybody had a great Labor Day weekend, uh, a lot of baseball this weekend, a lot of winning Mets baseball, and uh, coming into the program, you heard that clip from Buster Oldney's podcast over at ESPN, and had to start with that because it's going to be a theme of the show, really how I think everybody looks at this Mets run, and I think it's an indictment on how they're looking at, at baseball in general. But joining me in just a little bit, our good friend, he, he joins us uh, frequently, he had a chance to cover the Mets. He was in the Mets clubhouse this past weekend in Philadelphia. Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN. He'll join me in just a little bit. Had a chance to catch up with them after the Mets beat the Nationals 
earlier today. Of course, I hope you had a chance to listen, and if you haven't, you can download it on Apple Podcast to my appearance on uh, the show Talking Sports on 77 WABC. That show is on at 10.30 Saturday nights, 10.30 to midnight. It's uh, a sports show. Uh, I don't think they just talk New York sports. They're talking a lot of sports. I know they have college football on there, and it's a really good show, and it's a good way to decompress if you have time, you know, if you're not going out or you just came back from dinner or or a ball game where you're doing something on a Saturday night and before bed you want to decompress and listen to some good sports talk, which uh, is becoming fewer and fewer between these days. I think Talking Sports uh, is a great show on 77 WABC and uh, definitely recommend it and I had a great time spending time with Jonathan and Jeff there. So check it out. 77 WABC every Saturday at 10.30 p.m., whether I'm on it or not. If you haven't had a chance to hear my appearance, you could certainly download that on Apple Podcasts and uh, take a listen. But be that as it may, let's get to the situation at hand, which is the New York Mets. And those that had asked me after the six-game losing streak, I remember a lot of people saying, well, you know, what do you think of this team now? And As you heard Buster Olney, I mean, this was a waste of time. And how can you, you know, look at this team now? They're done. They'll need a miracle. And I was laughing because they were five games out. And certainly, the math is not in their favor. I mean, I had given you a 90-win math equation here. Mets math, we called it, right? All the way back, going back to the Miami series in early August. And to to achieve that, they need 20 wins and five losses. And that's, that's asking a lot. Um... That's asking a lot for anybody. That's the kind of streak they went on earlier in the second half against losing teams. And I think it's going to be hard to do it against teams, that some of which are, are playoff teams. But I still think that, you know, they could get in and be somewhere in that 87-win range and be in. It just doesn't guarantee. Like, I thought 90 wins would guarantee, and I still believe that, a playoff spot. Now there's a lot to be had. And someone would say, well, now you can see the Mets were frauds or the Mets, um, you know, their playoff chances, uh, you know, were ridiculously low for them to actually uh, go out there and compete. And I said to myself, that's just such nonsense. That's such BS. Because first of all, nothing changed with the Mets during the six-game losing streak. Uh, the, the formula that they need to employ to win was the reason why, and it wasn't employed, was the reason why they lost. They did not get good starting pitching in four of those six games. And when you play a lot of games close, tight to the vest, and you don't get the good starting pitching, and all of a sudden your offense goes into a little brownout, and and maybe that was to be expected because you had guys like J.D. Davis and Rosario uh, maybe playing way above their norms at that point. You were getting big hits from guys like Luis Guillerme and Juan Lagares, who was subbing in because you had injuries uh, to guys like Jeff McNeil, and Nemo still wasn't back, and, and, and you still didn't have Cano back. Um you know, he came back down to earth. Uh, nothing changed. They just lost those games in a row. And I also liken it a little bit to a basketball team that was down by a lot, went on this incredibly great run in the middle of a ball game, and then all of a sudden the opposition after there's like a, you know, you think those games where you go on a 20-4 to run and you get back into a game that you were way down, and all of a sudden the opposition comes down and knocks a couple of threes back-to-back. You know, that's just a correction. That's like the game correcting itself. Now you got to... Take a blow, and now you got to get your second win. And so far in the four games on this six-game road trip, the Mets have started to get their second uh, win, then won three out of four, and if they could split the next two games, one of which is against Max Scherzer, it's not going to be easy. 
um, they could have themselves a winning road trip. And if you remember when I went through Mets math earlier in August, they had to have one road trip where they had to win four out of six. I didn't think it would be this one. And maybe the problem now is because you had such a lousy three and six homestand that you may have to do that on more than one occasion. And maybe there'll be more of a focus on the Chicago, uh, the uh, Colorado-Cincinnati road trip than normal. Um, but I don't think anything differently about this team. And I, and I think that we have to get away from allowing fan graphs and baseball reference and playoff percentage odds and World Series percentage odds from re- really, in a way, the media playing fake GM, but in a way from us having it ruin what we our eyes see. Because I'll tell you what, nobody knows how to uh, uh, predict the exact postseason chances. They don't. There's no way. Baseball Reference has a formula of Fangraphs. And I, 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 in all due respect, because we've had guys from Fangraphs come on the show, I'm not disparaging their work. And I'm not saying it's all wrong. What I'm saying is nobody knows. All I know is if you sit there as a GM of a team on July 31st and you look at the field ahead of you and you look at the team that you have with guys like Alonzo and McNeil, Conforto, J.D. Davis, Rosario, and and having Brandon Nimmo probably come back in the next 30 days, who, by the way, last year was a top 25 offensive player. You have the four starters coming back next year, and right now with Wheeler 5, who are all very good to elite. And then you have Edwin Diaz and Seth Lugo, and you know I know Diaz has had a bad year, but he's still Edwin Diaz, and he still has a track record of more than one year, and Lugo has been outstanding. You just look at that, and you're like, well... We're as good as everybody else. Yeah, we've had some crazy outlier stuff happen. Our bullpen's been really bad. They they probably way underperformed in the first half. I don't care what your fan graphs percentage odds are. You go with that team as long as you're responsible. And like I said on WABC on Saturday, he hasn't done anything irresponsible, Brody, because anybody he's brought back has more years of control. So even though you've traded prospects... And I know Anthony Kay's getting called up now, so you know what's going to happen now. Every Strowman versus Kay start is going to be, you know, a comparison. And Strowman had his first really big start for the Mets yesterday. And it wasn't his fault they didn't win. It was the offense. So, you know, to me, you can't, and this is where Buster only goes so wrong. Everything is about value, is about fan graph percentages, about, well, now if you trade Noah Syndergaard now, next year he's going to have this much less value in. Or are you going to have to spend more money? Look, you got to play to put the best 25 guys out. And that's what this game is about. And that's why the wild card was created. And I'm sorry. Anybody says at any point in time that it's not worth it, that none of this was worth it, whether the Mets win another 10 games, another 15 games, another 20 games, it was worth it. Because I'll tell you what, you are... Uh, uh, building not only now, but you're also building for next year. You really are. Because this is not just about turning the switch on. Well, now we're ready to win. Now we're ready to win next year. This is, you know, let's just trade all our guys and then rebuild on the offseason and and try to win next year. No, that's not the way it works. You have to build some continuity. They're trying to build it where these guys now are going to be together and they've experienced things together. They've experienced the tough times. They've experienced the good times. They're building some kind of chemistry. And I know baseball is about an individual player, but it's also about each player feeling comfortable within their roles on the team and being able to perform and accept those roles. And I think all these guys have done that. Now, will everybody be back next year? No. 
We know not everybody's going to be back, but I certainly think the Mets have a core now, a core of players, and more offensive players than you think. Look at the fact that Brandon Nimmo's back and, he, and, and the impact he's had on the last couple of games, getting on base yesterday with a walk, getting a double today, getting on base two or three more times. I mean, this is an elite on-base percentage guy. And if his neck, and I, it always worries me when I hear about herniated discs and necks and backs because those could be lifelong problems, but if it is healthy and they've moved past that, now you have Alonzo McNeil, Conforto, J.D. Davis, Rosario, and Nimmo as a very good core of offensive players. Now, the real question is, is Nimmo a center fielder? And I guess that you know will have to be your center fielder because um, you know there's not much on the center field market, and you really can't expect he or uh, J.D. Davis, who's a corner, to sit. We'll get into J.D. Davis and his future at another time. But you have these guys who are all very good, and some of them elite offensive players, and they're young. So this is this is there's nothing to regret about what's going on. There's nothing to be sorry about, regardless of what happens the rest of the year. And I'll tell you what. They have shown you a lot, this team. They've shown you a lot because they could have easily packed it in this week against Philadelphia. They were down late against NOLA. They could have packed it in. They could have, uh, 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 they bent, but they didn't break on Saturday when the Phillies were making their comeback. The bullpen came in and did its job. They lost a big game yesterday. They got out of there. They didn't get home till 2, 3 in the morning. They could have mailed in this game against uh, the Nats. Ah, you know what? We're four or five games out. We ain't winning this thing. But they didn't. And they're showing you something. And maybe that should also be credit to Mickey Calloway. I don't know what his future brings, but that's also a credit to Mickey Calloway. And all I know is I think the last, uh, what do we have here, 23 some odd games are going to be a lot of fun. I really think they're going to be a lot of fun. The last 25 games or so, they're going to be fun. And I think that's what this is all about. And I don't know if they're going to make the playoffs, and that is the goal. And I'm sure if you get Brody Van Wagenen, and Mickey Calloway in a room at the end of the season say they didn't make the playoffs, but you had this positive, that positive, this positive. They're not going to sit around and say, yeah, it was a successful season. They're going to say, no, we didn't achieve our goal. But I do think they're in a better place going into next year than they have been in the last couple of years because there's more clarity about what they have. And you also don't have a GM coming in, rebuilding the thing on the fly, rebuilding an organization on the fly while putting together a roster while trying to compete, which is an impossible situation. But most importantly, I ask myself, why is there so much anger, especially from the likes of a Buster Olney? You heard his words, uh, and they were a little bit more, uh, they came across a little more aggressive on Twitter. But you heard his words in the open from his podcast over at ESPN. Uh, You know, why are they so angry about the Mets winning? You know, what's bothering them about that? And I really think it goes back to the Wilpons and Brody being against what the norm is now. It used to be analytics and what they brought were the outliers. And I even remember hearing that Billy Bean in Oakland doesn't like to do rebuilds. And he really hasn't done that. He always likes to try to win as much as he can while rebuilding. In a lot of ways, nobody talks about that because the A's have never really completely tanked. They've been bad and they've had limitations in their payroll. But it always seems after a couple of down years, they get back in it and they compete and win again. They never really are down too long. Um, and it doesn't seem totally hopeless because there's always a chance that, you know, they could put it together with whatever resources they have and put together a team that could compete and win. And you're seeing that again this year. But I think what the Mets are trying to do is against what the norm is. And not only when it comes to team building and, and putting aside 
re- raising and rebuilding the whole thing and putting all your money into analytics and all your money into scouting and all your money into things that create jobs for people. They don't put any entertainment value into the fan, into the ball player. It's about the, the front office and it's about jobs and putting money into that. It's also about how they're going about their business. And if you go to Sports Illustrated, Tom Verducci over at SI.com had an article about mainly the mystery of the Mets solving City Field offensively. And it was a topic that we didn't really get to dive into because I wanted to dive into the, this offseason. And the gentleman from Fangraphs, and I can't remember his name right now, that I was supposed to have on who wrote an article about it, wound up getting a job with the Rays, and I couldn't get him on the show. And then the season came, and they started hitting at home, and it really wasn't relevant. But in the article, Verducci talks about the Mets purposely going out and starting to question whether or not getting these guys with, with launch angles that are all or nothing hitters uh, for home runs, is that the right thing? Don't you want a more balanced level swing? Focusing on opposite field hitting, something that Chili Davis has been preaching about. And then a lot of that, having a, a, a more balanced approach, less extreme approach at the plate, is allowing them to do better with two strikes and also allowing them to hit in the clutch in times when you're facing pitchers that maybe throw in 98, 99, 100, or in situations where the the pitcher or the elite pitchers are bearing down. You're able to now just focus on contact and maybe drive in some more runs. And that's part of putting the ball in play. You put the ball in play, um, good things are going to happen. And a lot of this, to me, is against what you have as the norms. You have a G, a, an agent as a GM. You have a team bringing in an old-school kind of hitting coach in Chili Davis. They have an 82-year-old pitching coach. These are all things that threaten the establishment, the establishment that wants it to be about younger swing coaches, pitching coaches that seem to want to be able to say, hey, you know, we could we could take this lemons and turn it into lemonade. Aaron Sanchez got traded from the uh, Blue Jays to the Astros, and he had like six no-hit innings, I think, in his first start. Oh, look, the Astros, they could solve anybody. Go look at Aaron Sanchez's numbers. They stink. He's worse now than he was with Toronto. A bad pitcher is a bad pitcher. And can you help and develop a bad pitcher through analytics and maybe look at his repertoire and say you can do this, this, and this? Sure. I think that there's so much to be had for information. J.D. Davis is a perfect example of that because there's been plenty of articles out there that have talked about how J.D. can, with his preparation, has really put the time in and, and turned himself into a good player due to that preparation. So, you know, there's value to it. But at the end of the day, I really think we got to get away from shaming teams for winning. That's what this is about. Because if you think that putting teams on the field that can win means you cannot rebuild a farm system, means you cannot develop players in the minor leagues, then you're really fooling yourself. It's the biggest scam in sports. Because when you do these raised and rebuilds, the owners save money, the marketing department gets to work and keeps you on the string and the carrot keeps moving. And all that money that they save on putting into ball players that maybe could put you into the conversation for a wild card while you're rebuilding, that gets all poured in into development. And there's nothing wrong with that, but sometimes you have to say, is that an overinvestment? Because those guys want the money, those guys want the power, those guys want the jobs. They don't want to see it go to the uh, the uh, the outfielder that could come in and hit 22 home runs and drive in 80 runs and help a team who's a 75-win team maybe win 80, 81 games or be part of something. Baseball is a tournament. It's 162 games to get into a tournament. Fangraphs, 
baseball reference, whatever, has no idea what the percentage chance of anybody winning the World Series. Because once you get into the National League playoffs, you have a 50-50 chance of winning the playoff game. That's the odds. Nobody else could tell me otherwise. And once you get in to the NLDS, you have a 25% chance because you're one of four teams. And you have a 50-50 chance of winning that series. And the Mets play close games. And if the Mets continue to play close games and play every night playoff games, it'll be draining. It'll take a lot out of them, and it'll take a lot out of you. But it'll put them in a better chance to win. And if they fall short, I guarantee you they're going to be in a better position next year going into the season than they were this year. No analytics will show what the final 30 days is about. I'm here to tell you what it's all about. It's about continuing to build this team and continuing to build an organization and a new mindset, a mindset of winning, something that I think a sleepy organization, an organization that got very sleepy under Sandy Alderson, and maybe it was because he was sick, and maybe it was because Terry was too comfortable. And this is not about me going out and bashing those guys because, you know, as much as I didn't like Terry, he did get them to a World Series, and as much as I felt left wanting with Sandy and wasn't always crazy about the way he communicated with the media and some of the things he did. He did as good of a job during a time when financially the Mets were in a lot worse shape then than they are now. So I'm not here to bash them. But I do know that Brody Van Wagen has brought some new things to the table. And you want to know something? Mark my word, you heard about a lot of scouts being dismissed and how I think it was Matty Holt of Yahoo Sports talking about, oh, it's really bad right now around the team. Bringing in your own people and getting the old people out, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. That means Brody's bringing in his own people, and he's bringing in people that could go out there and build the, the, the vision and the philosophy that he wants to build, not to continue the one that's been sitting there under the Alderson regime. So there's nothing wrong with that. All I know is this is going to be hard, but there is hope. The Cubs got to play the cards about seven times. Uh, the Cubs are not a good road team. Mets could take care of business against Arizona. You know, Milwaukee's in the in the mix now. They're going to be playing against uh, the Cardinals and the Cubs and teams in their division. Mets still have three more games against the Phillies. Uh, the Phillies didn't impress me this weekend. So despite everything, despite all that has gone on, the six-game losing streak, the doubts, all the things that have happened throughout the season, this has been a season, like I said on 77 WABC, which has been exhilarating and frustrating and obnoxious and uh, depressing. I mean, everything, every adjective you could think I could probably describe this season. It's been a season like no other. But I do know the final 25 games are going to be fun. And I think this team is going to play them to the final out. And I think there's more moments to be had. And I don't think you should be ready to give up on these guys. Let's take a quick break. When I come back, Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN. He was with the Mets in Philly. Let's see what he thinks about all this. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast loves catching up with Mets alumni. Hear former pitcher Doug Sisk talk about the 1986 team when he joined me for the 30th anniversary weekend on May 29th, 2016. No, you know what? We were no different than anybody else right now. Just that right now, I think with all the cell phones, all the multimedia and all that, I mean, you can't get away with anything. Back then, it's not that we tried to get away with anything or anything like that. It was just we were free-spirited. We did what it took to win the game, both on and off the field. It's we needed to be prepared whatever way it was. Everybody was different. We had guys who would drink some beer in the front of the plane. We had guys that would drink this or have fun. And the other guys were playing Trivial Pursuit in the middle of the plane. Everybody was different. And they all respected what we did. But there was never one time where none of us ever focused on the game of baseball. And Davey will tell you that 100%. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com.
We're back, and uh, joining me from 9870 ESPN, you can check him out on Twitter, at Catino9, it's Rich Catino. He was live in Philadelphia, and I wanted to bring him in on this Labor Day. What better guy who's been in the Mets clubhouse over the last few days to get a feel of the team, who was uh, essentially left for dead upon arrival in Philly. Rich, welcome to the program, and uh, what a difference uh, a few days makes after a horrible end to the homestand, and uh, already... The, uh, the funeral arrangements were made for the Mets. Um, apparently, fan graphs and baseball reference is how writers these days uh, decide how to uh, determine if somebody's in the, the race. So good to see some good baseball for the last few days. You were there live for some of it. How you doing, my friend? Good. Uh, you know, I, I, I hope those writers who pin all their hopes on that never take me to a racetrack and tell me who to bet on a horse race with. I guess they don't look at trends of organizations and teams. The one thing you say about the Mets is they've been resilient this year. Do they have weaknesses like other teams in the National League wild card race? Sure they do. But they have shown the resilience within a game and going game to game of responding. So to be honest with you, I'm not very surprised they've won three out of the first four games of this road trip. Yeah, and that was a theme in my open, the resiliency, because that's not something that you could measure maybe with analytics or just look at OPS Plus or or players. And I keep telling everybody, I don't know if they can pull this off. It's still going to be really tough. You know, the Cubs have to basically play 500 uh, for the Mets to uh, you know get in or tie, let's say, with uh, 17 in a, you know 17 wins. So 17 wins put them at 87 and 75. So that's 17 and eight, uh, basically, just to get 87 wins and get a tie and and play in for the play in, let's say at that point. Um, but I think it's important for them to continue to play well, continue to establish an identity, uh, and build a foundation for next year. I know this year was about winning now, but you also had a new GM. You have a manager that's that's growing into the position. And I think it was an organization that was in transition and moving away from Sandy Alderson and Terry Collins to what they are now. And I have to tell you, Rich, you've been around the team the last two, three years. Uh, you know, after that run in 15-16, there wasn't a lot of resiliency in the 17-18 and 18 club. Uh, I just see a lot of differences this year. I don't know if that's Mickey, if that's the influence of Brody Van Wagen, and maybe that's some of the, the, the new guys that are here. But it's just a different feel. Win or lose, it's a different feel. Well, and I, and I think the coaching staff, too, along with Mickey, and I think we saw it today. Jeff McNeil had been slumping. And, you know, as SNY and their camera work do a great job, they they showed Chili Davis having a, a conversation with McNeil. And I think what he was, you know, I, I'm not a lip reader, but I think what he was trying to say is stay within yourself. You have a little rough time right now. You'll do fine. And the next to bat, he hits it over the, over the fence for a home run. Now, I'm not saying that it was all Chili's doing, but Chili's another guy that the media didn't like when the Mets hired him, okay? And they already had written their epitaph, just like they did with Phil Regan. And when you look at what Phil Regan and Chili Davis have done, it kind of speaks to the type of organization Brody Van Wagen is trying to build, that he doesn't care what the public perception is outside of the organization on his decisions. He does care about what his colleagues inside the organization, the feedback he gets from them. And 
I think one of the things that Phil Regan has improved on with his pitching staff, and one of the reasons I think that they've been able to make a run at this wild card is their first pitch strikes are commonplace now. And they weren't in the first half of the season, particularly with the bullpen, although somewhat with the starting rotation too. And the other thing he's done is every pitcher has a slider now that works for them. Um, and, and remembering Phil Regan when he was a pitcher, he was the guy that loved throwing the slider. Much like when Dan Warren was the pitching coach, he made sure that change-ups were in the arsenal of every pitcher. I mean, pitchers that had sliders before Regan got here have better sliders now. DeGrom has a better slider than he had before, you know, Regan got here. I think Syndergaard has developed one. I think guys like Luis Avalon, whose slider was their big pitch, he's worked on carving it out to be a more consistent pitch. These are not things that I can't see. I don't know why everyone else can't see them. They're, they're worried about the fact that the Mets hired who they felt was an old person to be pitching coach. And they felt that they hired a guy in a batting coach that had problems with the Cubs. Well, I got news for you. I guess the present-day batting coach, the Cubs, need to take some umbrage because prior to today, I think at one point they had 23 straight innings that they didn't score a run. And I think that's the problem with the way the media analyzes baseball. Baseball is not football. Football is one game a week, you only have 16 games in the season, so if you lose two divisional games at home, I understand why your season's in trouble in the NFL. I don't understand that notion in baseball. And to compound it, they've taken analytics and not only tried to use them as a strength in, as a reporter analyzing baseball, but use it as a crutch. A crutch, by that I mean if, if they disagree with a move and it doesn't work out, they'll point to how the analytics proved that it was the wrong move. Conversely, if things don't work out, they'll point to analytics as a reason why it did or didn't happen. Everything is going analytics. They try to oversimplify their analysis of baseball reporters are doing. And I think they're not allowing the fact, they're not thinking about how intelligent the baseball fan that reads their articles or listens to their reports are. And they don't need to have a scapegoat for every loss and a hero for every win. Sometimes when you lose, Mike, you tip your hat to the other guy who pitched a great game or, or had a great day at the plate, okay? Sometimes it's not in the cards. And I think they have to put a scapegoat on every loss and they have to put a hero on every win. And I've never looked at baseball that way. It's a team sport for a reason. It's never only one thing that defines whether you win or lose a baseball game. Yeah, and one of the things that um, I think it might have been Mike Vaccaro of the Post uh, was writing about uh, when he talked about uh, this team and their resiliency is that when you went to the clubhouse on Friday, here's a team that had lost six straight, uh, was heading into a very critical road trip. Whether they had won six straight or lost, we, you and I were on a few weeks ago. We, we pointed to these six games as, as probably the toughest road stretch left out of the three remaining trips that were out there. And it wasn't any kind of discernible difference in the clubhouse. It's a very even-keeled clubhouse. And I know that there's, again, still a lot of criticism of Mickey Calloway about his pension for bunting and his moves with the, the pitchers. And I even have some mailbag questions that uh, I'll be answering in a little bit uh, regarding those, those moves. But, um, you know, to me, that has to be a reflection on Mickey. Or maybe it's a reflection on the kind of 
veterans or the kind of players they have that they understand that if they, they go out there, they do their routine, they stay focused, you know, ultimately, I know this sounds boring and it sounds cliche, but if you do your work and you're at a certain talent level and you believe in that talent level, you know that the breaks are going to come your way eventually because that's just the way it works out. So it, it may be a combination of a bunch of things, but I thought it was interesting that Vaccaro had pointed out how the clubhouse, it wasn't a tight clubhouse. It, it, it wasn't at all a clubhouse that you would have thought uh, had lost six straight. I totally agree, and I think Todd Frazier is a big reason for that. And, and I think that, you know, leadership comes in a lot of different ways. Some guys can lead by encouraging players, young players, that Todd Frazier, like Todd Frazier does a lot. Some guys lead by example, and we saw that with David Wright, his whole career with the Mets. But I think there are leadership people in every corner of that clubhouse, even players that travel with the team a little bit that are hurt. Players like Robinson Cano who have still been in the year of young players during this run. So I think they've, I think Mickey has take some credit for that, the evenness, but I think, you know, a manager eventually can't just stay in the clubhouse with his players. He's got to go and work in his manager's office. So there has to be leadership in the room when managers and coaches are not around. And I think the Mets have plenty of that. Uh, even young players like Michael Conforto, I, I see a lot of David Wright and Michael Conforto in the way he goes about his business. And when Frazier was slumping with the bat for a long period of time, he was coming in early every day to work on stuff, whether it was stuff to look at film or whether it was actually you get in the cage and work on things. And don't think younger players don't see that, that a guy like Todd Frazier, who's had a long career already and who probably is close to the 18th hole of his career, has made a lot of money from baseball, but he still approaches it like he's got something to prove every day and he wants to get better every day. And don't think younger players don't see that. Don't think Ahmed Rosario didn't see that, and it, it kind of helped him understand why he had to work so hard on things like his defense. Don't think that it's not something that young other players like Dominic Smith had to learn about coming off the bench and how to do that. Don't think it didn't help Brandon Nimmo last year when he was around a player like Todd Frazier. So it has a big effect on it. But I think, you know, sometimes the media wants to make their analysis of a team so simplified because they think the fan needs needs an oversimplification of, of it. And they don't. I don't believe that because I talk to fans. I'm around fans. I see them at games. And fans understand the game. And, you know, I'll point to one thing from the Mets past that will kind of illustrate that. You know, Mets are in game seven against the Cardinals in the NLCS, and, you know, everyone points to the Beltron play. But prior to that, they had runners on first and second, nobody out, trailing by two. And instead of bunning, um, Willie Randall put Cliff Floyd up. And it didn't work out well for the Mets, but there was a lot of consternation of why don't you bunt there? Why don't you put up a Tom Glavin, who's a great bunter as a pinch hitter, and bunt the runners over to second and third, and, and then maybe have a chance of tying the game. But I think there's an argument that can be made that with Floyd, you didn't want to leave your bat on the bench and never use him. And with his power, he could hit a three-run homer and won the game or hit a double and tie the game. I do think there are there's ways of looking at that situation from both sides of it, and both sides of it have a legitimate argument. Okay, it's part of what makes baseball great. 
Well, my point is it's not a simple thing of saying it's a good move or a bad move. I don't look at moves by managers or, or even general managers that way. I look at it this way, Mike. Can I understand the move? Because if I can understand the move and the reason the move was made, then I'm not going to disagree with the move. I'm not going to say the move cost the team the game. I may disagree with it and say I might have done it differently. But as long as I can understand the mindset in making the move, I'm not going to dispute it too much because I've never been a Major League Baseball manager, okay? Right. Just just like if I'm writing an article, I wouldn't expect Mickey Calloway to look at my article and say, I might have used a different preposition there, Rich, and made the, and made the sentence sound better. I'm not, I wouldn't expect me to listen to Mickey Calloway with that because he's never written an article, okay? He's never done my job. I've never done his job. I'm not saying I can never criticize him. What I am saying is that if I can look at the decision and understand it, then I can say I disagree with it, but I can also say I understand what, what he was looking for from that, that situation. And um, I know that the bunt with Yorme last night was something that a lot of people criticized. I might have let J.D. Davis hit if I were the manager, but... I totally understood the move he was making, so I'm not going to have a, a tremendous amount of umbrage with it because I understood the move. I might have tried something different if I was the manager, but you know what? Here's a newsflash. I'm not the manager, and neither is anybody that covers this team in the newspaper or on the radio or on the television, and we all think we're managers. We all think we might be great managers. There's only 30-some-odd managers in all of in all the world in Major League Baseball, and there's a reason for that. Because it's a skill set that's very specialized. And I'm not saying you can't disagree with what the manager says or does, but I'm saying try to understand the reason behind it before you take all kinds of umbrage with it and say he's not qualified to do his job and using this as a reason. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN, joining me. Uh, you mentioned Chili Davis, and there was a very interesting article in Sports Illustrated about the Mets and their approach offensively. Now, uh, when you look at runs per game, the Mets are about league average, slightly above league average, uh, but they rank very well in some other categories on base percentage, OPS plus. Um, they're not a bad offense, you know, maybe, you know, with injuries to Cano and maybe with Ramos getting off to a slow start, not having Brandon Nimmo, you know, obviously the growing pains that we saw, uh, you know, for at times with uh, Jeff McNeil and uh, Pete Alonso. You know, J.D. Davis not coming out until maybe later in the year. Maybe that's been, you know, some some of the pits uh, or the valleys that, that that they've experienced. But they pointed out, and they they did it in context for Ducci, in the context of the article of figuring out how to win at City Field because the Mets had struggled there so much over the last couple of years. And the Mets are doing a lot of things that are against a lot of the principles, analytics principles, and things that the media holds true to their heart. Number one. They're not preaching launch angle. They're looking for more level uh, swings out there. They're looking, they're preaching opposite field hitting. They feel a lot of that and a more balanced approach, especially with two strikes, is leading to them improving with clutch hitting. And they're putting an emphasis on balls in play because, you know what, there's three true outcomes, the walk, the strikeout, the home run. Uh, you know, it could work, uh, and obviously to a certain degree, uh, there are teams that have scored a lot of runs that way, but it also leads you to a lot of brownouts. And a field like City Fields specifically, it's going to be a lot harder to execute that. Now, Chili Davis uh, is part of that, and, and maybe that's why he 
didn't stick in Chicago for that and a variety of other reasons. And he was talking to reporters at City Field last week. But I think maybe what you're seeing is is Brody coming in, trying different things, going against the grain. He's an against-the-grain pick. And I'm saying to myself, you know, these are things that I think should be applauded. I mean, the Mets clearly have played better at City Field. These are offensive principles that I think make a ton of sense. You know, there isn't just one way to go about offense. And I wonder, you know, reading this article and then seeing some of the anger coming from some of the national media outlets like ESPN and, you know, doing an I told you so when the Mets lost six in a row. I'm saying to myself, is this because they feel the Mets aren't following the template or the rules that, you know, a certain group of people who have gotten to power and a number of organizations feel is the only way to win? Uh, I think Chili Davis, and if you and I've heard the players on a number of interviews cite Chili unprompted uh, and, and the job he's doing. And, and I think this is just one example of, I think, the Mets doing some things that is not being reported where they're trying to do things a little bit differently and trying to balance out maybe the way they do their business in an analytics-crazy world. I agree totally, and I think that, you know, listen, there's a lot of different roads to get to where you want to go. And you could build a lineup based on speed and batting average and stolen bases and win, and the Cardinals proved that in the mid-'80s. You could build a team that can win based on, you know, the modern way with home runs, with the three, the walk, strikeout, and, and home run being the three most, you know, pertinent numbers that you look at. Um, a lot of teams have proven that. Well, you can build it the way the Mets are building a hybrid, and I think the Mets do have a lack of team speed, so that does affect the way that your offense can run. Um, the other thing is, you know, when's the last time we saw an article or anything mentioned on Brody picking the right catcher in the off season, not going with Grindal, okay, going with Wilson Ramos, not going with Gomes. That was another one that a lot of people wanted the Mets to go after. And he picked Wilson Ramos, and Ramos has, I know at one point this year, I don't know if it's still accurate, he had more RBIs than any catcher in baseball. And we all know about the hitting streak, and I mean, hitting streaks can sometimes be overblown because all you got to do is go one for four or one for five in a game, and that's a 250-200 batting average. And I think it's how you behave in that hitting streak. Do you have a lot of multiple hit games? But Ramos has definitely bought into the whole Chili Davis thing because it was a big way of how he became, you know, a great player. Um, Wilson Ramos is a power hitter that uses the whole field, and we've we've seen it all year. But when are we going to see an article, you know, extolling the virtues? If you're going to criticize Brody for acquisitions he didn't make, then the acquisitions that worked out that he made, you have to give him credit for. I mean, if you're going to put him in a courtroom and kind of look at what he's done with the Mets, you have to be able to look at the whole report card, not just the report card that makes your arguments sing. And, you know, has he done some things? Maybe he gave up too many young players in the Cano deal. But maybe that Cano deal he lost Bruce Swarzak's contract, and maybe that created the opportunity to sign Wilson Ramos and Justin Wilson. And these have all been good additions to the Mets. So it's very hard to take what a general manager does, just like what a manager does, take one thing and say, well, see, he did this wrong, so he's a bad general manager, or he did this right, and he's a good general manager. You look at the whole report card and try to figure out what he's done. And overall, I've said it all year, I think Brody's done a good job of 
putting a roster together that could become a playoff team. I'm not going to sit there and say it was a great job, but it's a good job. And it's particularly a good job for someone that's never done it before. And I do think that that, that is something that the media has totally missed on, and um, it's because they have hidden agendas with the Wilpons and all kinds of things. But it, it's they're not evaluating both Callaway and Brody in a fair fashion. I mean, the biggest thing coming into this weekend before the three out of four was, well, is this worth it? You know, you have Buster Olney talking about the credit card's going to come home to be due. The Mets are never going to get the value they could have gotten out of Edwin Diaz. His salary's going up. Uh, they could, they, you know, the salary of, Ed, of uh, Syndergaard is going up. His value's going down. Uh, they're not, you know, they could have traded Wheeler. Uh, you know, the whole thing is, and, and knowing that this is still a tough task, knowing that getting to just 87 wins is going to require a high level of baseball and it's going to require other teams losing that you have no control over. And, uh, you know, that's why the sweep of the Cubs Cubs was so tough because those were games that you could have controlled. Assuming they fall short uh, to me, again, I go back to what I said at the beginning, you're building something here. You don't have to tear a team down from scratch or rebuild it from scratch to build something. They have a lot here. They have a good core of offensive players. Even if Wheeler leaves, they have four very good starting pitchers. Diaz is coming around and is still very young. I don't care if his salary is going up. You know, that's nonsense. I mean, you know, we're going to base everything on arbitration. Um, this was worth it, but there are a lot of people that are going to probably come out and say, well, there you go. You traded two. And, you know, God help if Anthony Kay has a good September because it looks like he's going to get called up. You traded two prospects and you got back Stroman and you didn't make the playoffs. Was it worth it? Uh, to me, it is because he hasn't given up anything that impacts 2020. And I think this is about, you know, winning this year and winning in the near future. And, you know, personally, Rich, I don't think anybody has a crystal ball. There's going to be more international drafts. There's going to be more uh, drafts. They have players they draft. There's going to be players that we're not talking about that all of a sudden are going to get on people's radars after the Arizona Fall League. Uh, I'm sorry. I I just can't see how this wasn't worth it, especially because you can see the Mets fans invigorated. And I feel the average fan, not the fan that's caught up in all this you know, team building, you know, fantasy GM mogul nonsense. I think that they enjoy what the Mets are doing, um, even if they don't necessarily like the ownership group. I I agree. And I think when I look at the Mets' chances to get that second wild card, I just say to myself, I look at the series they have left, and I'm not asking them to sweep any series, although if you sweep series, it kind of gives you a little bit of a cushion, but they got to win every series from here on in, and that includes the two four-game series, one with the Marlins and one with the Diamondbacks, where you got to take three out of four. If they do that, they'll get to 87 wins. I mean, I did the math. They'll get to it. They're at 70 wins now. Um, you know, they take one out of the next two with the Nationals, and then they come home, and if you beat the Phillies two out of three, you beat the Diamondbacks three out of four, and you beat the Dodgers two out of three, you're, you're still in that role where you get to 87, 88 wins by the end of the season. There's some tough series. If you go to Colorado and Cincinnati, you got to take those two series. And then the last two series of the year, the aforementioned four-game series I mentioned with the Marlins and three-game series with the Braves. Now, the homestand they're coming back from after this trip is a tough one. you got the Phillies, you got the Diamondbacks, you got the Dodgers. Now, one perk the Mets may have is it's possible – that by the time they play the Dodgers, the Dodgers have already clinched the division. So 
that could change the way the Dodgers rest players, et cetera. So that could be a benefit for the Mets, so that's something to watch. I think their magic number is well under 10 now, the Dodgers. So um, that's definitely something to watch. And also, prior to the Dodgers coming in, the Mets play the Diamondbacks, and if the Mets take that series, they'll help the Dodgers' magic number along with wins over the Diamondbacks. So there's a lot of things that could take to fruition here. Um, the problem with losing six in a row is not losing six in a row. It's kind of it, it, it puts you in a spot, a bad spot, because it's almost like you lost six straight, two out of three series. When you think about getting swept in two, three game series, that puts you at zero and six. And if you would have even just lost those series, you would have been at two and four. The big difference in the standings. So yeah, it, it was a very troublesome time when the Mets lost those six in a row. But looking ahead, they got to win series. And if you could get one sweep in there in the middle of it with one of these series, it helps you out because then it gives you a little cushion to get to 87 or 88 wins. And the Mets have proven they can sweep series. The Mets have proven they can beat good teams. I know that's the thing that everyone seems to tell me, that the Mets can't beat teams that are over 500 teams. But how they fare against the Washington Nationals this year? And right. I'm talking about the whole season, even in the early season when the Mets weren't playing well. I mean, I believe the record is now 11-6 and six with today's win, and that's tremendous because I think the Nationals are one of the best teams in the National League. Now, they haven't played well against the Braves. We know that. But, you know, you got some teams coming in that are good teams, and the Mets have proven they can handle good teams. They swept the Twins, and the Twins are at least a quasi-playoff team. They swept the Indians. The Indians are a, 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 probably a playoff team. So they split four games with the Yankees. So don't sit and tell me that the Mets can't beat teams that are good because they've proven they can. Now, maybe their record against the good teams is not where we want it to be. But there are instances not only where the Mets have beaten playoff teams, Mike. They've swept them. They swept the Twins. They swept the Indians. They swept the series earlier in the year with the Nationals. So... No one's going to sit here and tell me that they can't beat good teams. And I I still think it's a possibility. I do agree with you. I think it's a remote possibility. But I think it's something that, you know, you're four games behind the Cubs now, and you want to get that down two games behind that second wild card by the middle of the month. You can do that, then you got two weeks to whittle it down to catch them or even pass them. And I think that's the way you got to look at it. And if you keep winning games and winning series, I think it'll take care of itself, and it'll start getting whittled down. You have head-to-head with the Diamondbacks. You can take care of them on your own. You have head-to-head with the Phillies. You can take care of them on your own. You don't have any games left with the Brewers. You don't have any games left with the Cubs. Um, But definitely need help with those teams. But the thing about the Central Division, too, is I think the three teams involved in there, the Cardinals, Brewers, and Cubs, there's a tendency they might beat each other up. Also remember this with the Cubs. In the last 11 games of the season, they play the Cardinals seven times. Now, that could be that could push the Cubs back towards the division if they win them, but also the Cardinals can help the Mets by handling the Cubs. And it's not impossible to think that can happen, but in life, like baseball, you only can worry about the things you can't control. The guys in that Mets clubhouse can only worry about winning on the field that day and making sure that you know, the rest of it takes care of itself. And we sometimes forget 
that at the All-Star break, the Mets in the wild card race were behind every team except the Marlins. Every single team. They've now gotten to the point where they passed a lot of those teams and they need one more push to push themselves in a position where they can get the second wild card. Their historicals have proven to me that they're not going to quit. And I know that sounds corny. I know that sounds hokey. But I've been around a lot of baseball teams. I was around, I was around that team to quit. Okay? I was around the Brett Saberhagen teams. Okay? So I know when a team looks like they've quit. The Mets don't have never, I've never viewed them that way this year. Within a game or game to game. And I expect their trend upwards to continue. You know, the next two games are tough. You're facing Scherzer, but heck, the Nationals are facing DeGrom. And then if you get tomorrow night's game, then you can start thinking about sweeping the series. But even if you don't, you've taken the series. And if you go on this road trip and you have, you've won four out of six taking series from on the road from Washington to Philadelphia, I think you're in a good position to come back home and really take advantage of playing the games at City Field where you've been awfully successful this season. Yeah, and before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that you may be getting Robinson Cano back. That's amazing. Uh, you know, anybody who could question, and I know that they don't like Cano sometimes. They feel he's, you know, he's, he's too lackadaisical. I mean, he could have shut it down. He doesn't have to push back from a from what seemed to be a season-ending hamstring injury. You've seen the impact of Brandon Nimmo over the last couple of days. And Jed Lowry may be back, too. We'll see. You know, both Nemo and Lowry were top 25 offensive players, according to wins above replacement on baseball reference in 2018. You've got a lot of reinforcements on the way. Um, so you have a great shot here. But again, I, I, I think just I look at the process. And again, I know it's about making the playoffs. Not making the playoffs, I know Brody will come out. Mickey will say out. will say it's disappointment. It's a disappointment, and they did not uh, do what they set out to do. But I'm also looking at how they end the season because I think how they end the season is going to impact next year. But I definitely think those three guys, and especially with Cano pushing to come back, tells me a lot about him. It really does. And, you know, anyone who talks about Cano, and I'll say to them, put yourself, and I'll say this to any writer who covers the team, put yourself in, in their shoes for a minute. Let me, I'll, 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 tell you, I'll talk to any writer and say, you have a three-year contract to say right to the New York Post or the Daily News or this, that. You have a three-year guaranteed contract. And you fall and break your hands. Are you going to do everything you can to get back as soon as possible so you can continue pounding away at your laptop? Or are you going to know you have a guaranteed contract that your company can't get out of? And are you going to just say, well, I'll pick it up next for training? I would love to give some truth serum to the people that cover this team to find out what their answer would be to that question. I know the answer to the question for me would be I try to get back as soon as I can because I love the game. But maybe I'm a hokey, corny uh, idiot. I don't know. But I know that that sometimes we say players should come back, but put yourself in that position with the guaranteed money with the guaranteed contract, you're going to get paid that amount no matter whether you work or not. And will the normal Joe in the street have the motivation to come back quickly from a debilitating disability? I think we all know the answer to that question, Mike. Rich, as always, 
great to get your perspective. I know you had a, a fun weekend down in Philadelphia. Always get a good take of what's going on in the locker room. Uh, I'm sure we'll catch up before the season's out and uh, listen to you on 98.7 ESPN. So appreciate a few minutes tonight, my friend. No problem, Mike. Stay well, my friend. We'll see you real soon. That's uh, Rich Catino, 98.7 ESPN at Catino9. Good stuff. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we return, wrap up. We'll have a couple of mailbag questions I had asked for. Try to go through a, a couple of them and then wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. You never know who's going to stop by the Talking Mets podcast. Back on June 16, 2019, Hall of Famer Mike Piazza talked about the transition from Los Angeles to New York. It was a huge environmental shift. I mean, I'm living on the beach in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, walking around in flip-flops and sandals and then getting in a car and driving to Dodger Stadium and the fans love me and, and the, the girls love me and everyone's screaming your name. And then next thing you know, you're in the you know the cauldron that is New York because uh, it's just, it was a different environment and, and it was more laid back in Los Angeles. Um... He, until my contract dispute, I never got booed in L.A. So when I was getting booed here, it was like a new experience, and I really didn't know how to handle it. And then I eventually came around and I figured it out that New York fans are passionate. They have a blue-collar attitude. They just they love their team. And I mentioned that in my Hall of Fame speech. I think it made me better. Listen to this and more on the Talking Mets podcast at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. Panic drives one to deep right center field. Back in the gap goes Robles, and that ball off the wall for an extra base hit. Davis will score. And he takes one the other way, and that's going to fall for a base hit. Nimmo had to hold up. He'll come in to score. And Panic will stop at third. Rene Rivera with his first big league hit of the season, and it drives in a run, and it's 2-0 New York. Tenth pitch of the at-bat. And Gomes goes down swinging. And he strikes out Ross. And a half swing and a miss, and Syndergaard strikes out the side in the third. And he swings and rockets one deep right center. Forget that. That's way out of here. Chili's words pay off. Jeff McNeil with a two-run homer, and the Mets lead it 4 nothing. And Davis lines one down the left field line. That's an extra base hit into the corner, and that'll bring in two. And the Mets lead 6 nothing. He hits the first pitch and just past the reach of Adams down the line, and that'll bring in another run. Nemo into second base with a double, 7 to nothing, New York. Cabrera skies one to deep right center. Back in the gap goes Conforto for a look, but that ball's out of here. As Dribble Cabrera breaks up the shutout with a 3-1 homer. His 15th of the year, his third as a national. And now it's 7-3, 2 he struck him out, and the ball game is over. And the Mets have now won three of four on this road trip as they beat the Nationals seven to three. All right, we're back. That was Rich Catino. Always enjoy catching up with him. Ninety-eight seven ESPN. And I and I really before I get to the two, I picked two mailbag questions because they were the best ones, and I don't have that much time uh, left. But I did want to make a point about Cano, which I saw some of the videos that were out on Twitter uh, of his hits in Brooklyn on Saturday night. Looked like he was running well. It wasn't there, so I can't speak firsthand. But the fact that, 
you know, he recovered so quickly and he put the time and he has the inclination and the effort to come back. I mean, I know that's his job and we shouldn't be applauding him for that, but you guys all have this idea that Robinson Cano doesn't care or is lazy, stealing money. That shows a clubhouse so much when this guy's coming back. He's not looking at the Fangraphs playoff odds and saying, you know what, let me rest this hamstring. He could be potentially coming back too soon. I'm hoping that the Mets are cognizant of his age and health. I'm sure they are. And and putting himself in more jeopardy uh, health-wise. But he's, he's going out there because he wants to be part of this and he wants to try to win. I mean, he's only been out about a month, maybe a little less. I for sure thought he was out for the rest of the year. Maybe best-case scenario, he comes back for the final week. And by that time, you've been out so long, what could you expect? I don't know if they're going to play him every day. Uh, it might not be in his best interest to play more than three or four times a week at this point. Um, but I think he could help, and so could Jed Lowry. Again, I keep going back. You know, These are guys that, no matter what metric you were using, uh, Lowry was a top 25 offensive player, just like uh, Brandon Nimmo. Uh, this is big. I mean, these are big reinforcements. A team that's you know scoring a shade under five runs a game. And I keep telling you, the formula is pretty simple, guys. If the starting pitching does its job and leaves only six outs to the bullpen, they're going to be in all these games, and they're going to win a lot of these games. Is it going to be enough to overtake the Cubs and the muck that has become this wild card? I don't know. They built the deficit, and now they have to live with that deficit they built um, and work with the hand that they have. And and, and I think there's going to be some real exciting times. That's why, basically, uh, I was so disappointed at how— you know, the reaction after the sweep of the Cubs. Those are damaging games, the Braves and the Cubs. And there's part of me that believes at the end of the year, if they don't make it, uh, that that's going to be why. Because you're going to say something, well, two out of those four games would have put this team in the playoffs. Not even 500, too. That would have put you at a 5-4 and four homestand, which would have been disappointing after a 3-0 and oh start, but you could have lived with it. So to me, that's that's the big deal here. That's the disappointing part. But you know what? Uh, there's nothing you can do about it. You can move on. Let me go to the mailbag before we wrap up. I, I, I took a couple of them here. Uh, Stefan uh, Bitesh, and I hope, again, if I pronounce your name wrong, please get back to me. If you ever want to email me with a comment, uh, we don't do mailbags every show, but I'm, I, I wanted to take some today. It's Mike Silva, M-I-K-E-S-I-L-V-A, at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Com. And Stefan uh, had two comments. Uh, first one uh, goes, why does Mickey continue to make head-scratching moves? I would get it if he was a successful manager, but last night Zamora had no business facing Harper. Well, I think a couple of things. First, I think because Justin Wilson wasn't available, and I don't trust Familia against lefties. I said this last year, and with him coming back, Familia, you have to be careful against a tough lefty. Um, I do think that knowing that... Uh, and I don't like Brock against him. Zamora wasn't a terrible move. I guess I question the pitch selection. Part of me says, you're a slider guy. Try to execute your slider as best as possible. There was actually a graphic during the game that ESPN put up that Harper's got like a 1,000 OPS against a fastball, and he's beyond pedestrian against anything but a fastball. Through a fastball, and I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to get ahead so he could set up his slider. It's not a totally bad strategy. He just didn't get it in enough. And... Um, you know what? If Wilson's not available, what can you do? You got to go with the next best thing, which is Zamora, who uh, is not a bad pitcher, but is a very limited pitcher and someone that probably will be extinct 
next year with the two batter minimum. Was it two or three batter minimum? I guess we'll see. Uh, also, Stefan wanted to know, do you believe the Wilpons brought back Familia, not Brody? Look, this idea that the Wilpons tell people and have a puppet, I've been through this. Brody rose through the ranks at CAA. I do believe that Familia, because of his familiarity with the organization, I wouldn't be surprised if Omar Manaya had a lot to do with it versus Jeff Wilpon. I think he was willing to accept the contract that they put out there that they thought they could uh, potentially fit into their budget for a middle reliever. He had closing experience. Uh, he had a familiarity with New York. Think about this. Everybody that they're bringing in has some sort of connection to New York because they were they grew up here or a connection to the organization. I think they're putting a lot of value in that. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. So no, I don't think it was the Wilpons. I do think his prior uh, stint here had something to do with it. I had some concerns. I always think the shoulder is a ticking time bomb and he's had some issues. Um, but look, David Robertson was the guy that I wanted. I did a podcast about that would be the guy that I'd go. And he's been out for the year. So I would have been wrong too if uh, David Robertson was the guy. Now, uh, Daniel uh, Chisinau, uh, and again, Daniel Chisnall, I should say his name is, he's from the United Kingdom, so welcome from across the pond. And Daniel, you had a ton of questions here, and there's a lot of good questions, and I'm not going to be able to go through each one of them, but I will address them on future podcasts. So continue to interact with me over at Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, and I'm going to uh, take on two here. One is about Mickey Calloway, uh, and his being a new age manager. And uh, the second one is um, about Brody Van Wagenen and what happens if the Mets uh, fall short of a wild card. Uh, so first things first, Mickey was supposed to be one of these new age managers. Apart from not being critical of the players, what new age attributes have you been evident in your opinion? That's a great question and not many. So if you were looking for someone who was going to go in and use the closer in any position or bat the pitcher eighth, or be anti, you know, some of the analytic uh, buzz things that are like bunting. Mickey hasn't been that. I think the I think this new age versus old school manager may be a little bit overused because I think managing is a combination of using a lot of different things at your disposal. I think why Mickey Calloway was selected was because he could connect a little bit better with younger players, which was something that Terry Collins didn't do. Terry Collins was, here's my veterans, you manage the clubhouse. He was almost, I used to call him a gym teacher, because he was almost like the gym teacher with the whistle that really was just overseeing things. That's And, and that's why when he wasn't good at managing a bullpen, I was like, geez, you know, he did a good job keeping the media at bay, I can tell you that. He didn't do a good job of the bullpen, and he had his veterans control the clubhouse. And when things went bad, things went haywire, especially when some of the veterans were traded off and he had those issues at the end of 2017, which probably were a long time coming. But your point is he's not really new age. I don't know if that has to do with his uncomfortability about managing in New York and being second-guessed. If, uh, you know, a lot of that could be about the kind of players he has and their comfort level. Remember, things like batting second which is uh, an analytic staple, which is something that Mickey's talked about. Ioannis Cespedes wasn't comfortable with that. Now, he's put Pete Alonso in that. And then what I would say is, what I disagree with Mickey is, I like a consistent lineup, one through eight, every day. I like players to be in the same spot. And he's moved a lot of players around. And maybe there's a reason for that. I've never sat down and talked to him or heard anybody talk to him about that. But no, I don't see anything new age. So if you were looking for a new age, an analytics-heavy manager that doesn't believe in bunting and you know, believes in kind of putting the lineup in all these different quirky ways. Um, no, I don't see Mickey as that guy. And I'm not sure that's what Brody Van Wagenen wants. And I would be very surprised, depending on 
uh, if the Mets don't make the playoffs. Now, if you listen to Andy Martino, he still thinks that Mickey's in trouble. And with the shakeup they just had and they announced with the scouting department, uh, it goes to show you that Brody Van Wagenen wants to bring in his own people. And Mickey wasn't hired by him. So it really make you wonder what's going on. The only one on that staff that was hired by him was Chili Davis. Uh, and I think he's done a pretty good job. We talked about that with Rich Coutinho. We talked about that in the open. So, um, you know, I, I still think it's going to be interesting how Mickey's handled. Because I think they're going to end up, let's say, about 85 to 87 wins. I think that's pretty fair where they're going to end up at. And uh, I, I, unless you go out, and we'll talk more in depth about this, unless you go out and you get yourself a Joe Girardi or an elite manager, I don't know why I would go out and get another manager like Mickey, unless it's just the fact that Brody wants his own guy, which is something that's possible. It's very possible. Uh, to piggyback on that, and, and again, Daniel, you put a lot of effort into this email for the mailbag, and I appreciate it, but I am running out of time, so I'm going to take one other point here. Um, assuming the Mets fall short of the wild card, do you think Brody Van Wagenen's first season will be seen as a success? No, it won't be because it's too soon to really rate him. Um, and not making the playoffs, you cannot say it's successful because of how he went in. But what I do know is that a guy took over in mid-October and he's had the task of building a team to compete right away, rebuilding an organization and facets of the organization, assessing his farm system, having to trade that farm system and go and help uh, basically oversee a draft. Obviously, there's a lot of other people that are involved with that. Uh, I don't think it. you can really grade Brody uh, fully. I think he's done some really good things. Um, we still don't have a, a real feel of what his belief system is in terms of what kind of manager he wants. Um, I think the way that he's traded prospects tells you that he has a preference or believes in certain prospects that this team has and not in others. I know Adam Guthridge has this prospect model that I've read about that he put it together. And, uh, you know, he's been an analytics guy going all the way back. So I think he has some influence. Uh, I don't think it would be considered a success if he, he doesn't make the playoffs. But even if he does make the playoffs, uh, I don't think we could grade Brody totally because I think you really have to see where this organization is going and who are the new, the, you know, the new scouts they bring in. What's kind of the, what are they leaning on? Are they leaning on, on, on a different type of analytics a heavier analytics department is the manager coming back. I think there's a lot of questions I have that will tell us a little bit more about what Brody Van Wagenen wants the Mets to look like going forward. Uh, the first year is always the toughest year because even when Sandy Alderson took over, he had to basically tear the thing down and rebuild it back up. And by the way, he did that not with the mandate to compete, which basically uh, Brody's had to compete. So Anyway, uh, that's what I uh, I think about that. But thank you, Daniel, for uh, spending so much time. I know there was more questions that you had. I will get to some of those other ones as uh, time goes on. Hey, I'm, I'm going to have to wrap up here. Uh, we're running out of time here. I don't like to go too far over the hour mark, but I want to thank uh, those who contributed to the mailbag, and we'll try to do more of these, especially during the offseason. I'm going to try to do more and more of these. You can go to at Mike Silva Media on Twitter. You can follow me, maybe shoot me something over there. But of course, send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Remember, no G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. want to thank Rich Catino for joining me, uh, given his perspective. He was live down in Philadelphia over the weekend at Catino9 on Twitter. Check out his segments on 98.7 ESPN. Of course, you could check out the show all the time at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Leave me a review on Apple Podcast. I would greatly appreciate it. Of course, you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, uh, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire I'm on. And I'm trying to work on getting on Spotify, so working on that. 
I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Labor Day. Enjoy your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast later in the week. A lot of baseball to be happy about. Not time to give up. Don't look at the percentages and the fan graph percentages. Just enjoy the games. We'll be back with another edition pretty soon. Thanks a lot, everybody.